Jean. Against the odds, the German director casts her as Joan of Arc when she has no experience whatsoever to speak of, only dreams and the kind of large-eyed, smooth-skinned beauty of a girl child. Later, she remembers being burned at the stake twice, once on set under the monocular gaze of the German director's viewfinder and three dozen crew members, and once when the reviews came in. This is before FBI COINTEL, of course, but in hindsight, incidents aren't always so easy to separate. Timelines not always monodirectional. She walks to the Parisian bedroom location, no sets for these French directors, as a character she will later claim not to care for, a crop-haired, breezy American in a narrative enamoured of national stereotypes and the definitions that separate men from women. She dozes in the bed with Jean-Paul, smooth-chested, atlas-bodied, flat-nosed casuist Jean-Paul. She is a tool of collocation. In the 23 minutes of this shoot presented in cinemas, later on video, DVD, stream, she will become something not exactly timeless, but existing in a different designation of time to the one she walks through daily. People will say they have fallen in love with her, with what they see of her, of her as this character, in what is shown of this shoot. And this is still before FBI co-intel, years before, though not many. David, her brother, of course, died in a car crash when he was 18. Francois, her husband, beat the shit out of her before attempting to launch his directorial career with her, mid-estrangement, as his star. La recreation. Estrangement, a funny word. From the French, estranger, like the Camus. As if strangers is a state you can return to. Perhaps it is a different you, a different pair of the pair of you, because it seems that the past version will always be intimately acquainted with that past Francois, the one who was still just a lawyer, his celluloid ambitions discreet. And then there was Romain, sweet Romain, who had his moments, but never beat the shit out of her. He saw the men who followed her, the cars parked outside their apartment, heard that insectoid hum and click-click when he picked up the phone. The story they fed to Newsweek about the Black Panther fathering her baby, it fell straight from the Metaplan, Cause her embarrassment and cheapen her image, says the memo. You can read it yourself. The story wasn't true, of course. The baby, in fact, belonged to Carlos, the revolutionary who she'd had an affair with on the set of the Mexican Civil War drama. But Romain, decent Romain, said it was his. She said she was his. A little girl, born early, weighing four pounds. A little tiny flickering speck of starlight. A few pulses of woolly lids over blurry retinas. A few days of earthly light like a matchy strike that doesn't catch. On the day that Jean's body is found, decomposing in a blanket in the back seat of her Renault in the 16th arrondissement, her next of kin is an Algerian conman who sold her apartment for 11 million francs so he could open a restaurant. Hello and welcome to Two Minute Stories. I'm Mark Pajak and I'm, I'm here with... Chris Nealon. Here, yeah, here, here is Chris Nealon. Hello, Mark. My long, my long suffering. <laughs> the long co-host. suffering co-host. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. How you doing, Mark? I'm all right. All right. I, I feel compelled to apologise for everything. Everything, everything that was said pre-recording. The audience doesn't need to know. You can, you can, you can fill in the blanks with your use your own. imagination. Exactly. Aye. Use your own creativity, audience. Jesus Christ, why mm. are you always relying on us to give you all the details? So, what's on the show today, Mark? On the show today, <laughs> well, I've, I've used up I've used up all my um, all my film critic penis stories. Uh, well, yeah, 
Um, and uh, all out of them. Well, that I think one's enough, really. If you had too many, you don't. You would don't want to be the. It'd be samey, wouldn't it? It would be. It'd be samey. It would be a bit samey. Unfortunately, I'd, I mean, I'd like make... to say I'd seen Pete Bradshaw's testicles, but I, I, I haven't. Well, I simply haven't. You know, you've got something for the to list. It's always <laughs> nice to aim for something. I'd maybe aim a little higher. Gotta be. <laughs> <laughs> you can take pubis. That. Yeah, yeah. Pete Bradshaw's you can take pubis. That. <laughs> Oh, so welcome everybody to Two Minute Stories, where you get real quality, a, really. That was about a minute and a half into the recording the intro and we got to Pete Bradshaw's pubis. I think that's... that's I think we've done well. Nice. It's, oh, it's a new restrained. record for us. Yeah. Well, um... What's on the show today, Mark? <laughs> well, well, today we're, we're talking to, um, uh, to, to two writers who are, who, who are based in and, in and around, two northern writers, really, and uh, yeah. in Ian and Emma and... Yes, we are. We've got. Uh, I suppose I, sh- I should introduce them now, shouldn't yeah, I? Since, go for I've, it. since I've prompted that, we've got the the uh, ridiculously fantastic Emma McGordon, McGordon, and the fantastically ridiculous, and the fantastically ridiculous <laughs> Ian Walker. The pair of them, the pair of them, are, uh, um, gracing us with their ridiculousness and their fantasticness. Mm-hmm. Um, Emma McGordon is an award-winning poet, performer, and community artist. She was awarded the 2017 Julia Darling Fellowship, the Norman Nicholson Award for Poetry, and a Northern Writers Award. She's been noted as a writer to watch by the Times Online, and in 2018 was longlisted by the Saboteur Awards as a UK Best Spoken Word Performer. She graduated from the Manchester Writing School, which I did not know, by the way, mm. um, right here at MMU. Uh, where she was mentored by Caroline Duffy and Michael Simmons Roberts, and she was longlisted for the National Poetry Award this year. Mm-hmm. What a lovely list of achievements yeah. for Emma. Um, Emma, both Emma and Ian were longlisted this year, which is really lovely. Were they? Yeah. Well, I should add that to my introduction for Ian Walker, shouldn't I? Oh. We've got Ian Walker coming on the show, who, who of course, as we all know, was longlisted for the natural, National Poetry Award this the year. The Natural Poetry Award. The Natural Poetry Award this year. That's the most... Shut up. <laughs> shut up, Mark. I'm so, I'm so sorry. I don't know why you invite me to do these I things know. with you. You just ruined my flow. <laughs> Criticised my jumper. He was criticising my jumper, audience. Before you, before I'm just we, jealous. You know, yeah. I'm just jealous. Got it in TK Maxx. Oh, really? I'm quite, I'm quite pleased with it. How much? I think it's about fifteen pounds. Oh, that's not bad. It's about not bad for fifteen pounds, right? Oh, yeah, it's, it's lovely. Thank you, thank you. That's all I wanted. That's, that's all, all I wanted. That's all I wanted from this podcast. Ian Walker, Ian Walker was longlisted for the National Poetry Award this year, and he received he received his poetry MFA. Uh, from the writing school here at MMU. He was apprentice poet in residence at the Ilkley Literature Festival. His poems have appeared in The North, The Cadaverine, and Ink, Sweat, and Tears. Mm. So there you go. Two fabulous, wonderful poets gracing the show today. Yeah, and um, uh, that apprentice uh, for Ilkley Literature Festival, Mm. I'm really excited because... I don't know because you you're you're going to be talking to Ian today. That's true. Uh, but I've I've heard something really exciting. Some of the stuff that he did uh, at the Ilkley Literature Festival. I've heard some some little hints of things he was doing, and it sounds really interesting. He's also mm. just a, an incredible writer and a really interesting person to to speak to. I th- I've I've wanted to get Ian on the show for ages because he he came and read at the uh, the live lit night that me and Helen had for a little while last mm. last year called Lit Up. And he lit up, lit up. He was brilliant. He read, uh, um, I think he might have read some of his invertebrate stuff. Mm. And uh, and he was just fantastic. Really beautiful, kind of emotional, um, well, 
well but not overly ornamented language and mm -hmm. a kind of sort of sincere but playful performance. So he's a, he's going to be a treat for everyone and Emma McGordon equally so. Yeah, there's um there's something about attraction in in mm. both of these writers work. It's true. And there was and and again it kind of came in, in through your piece that you just started us off with. There was there was a whole idea of yeah. about but there was something slightly untoward and unsettling about the attraction going on in your piece. Mm. Um and again uh yeah, the the again with it like like your your um piece about the choices um video store the video store yeah there, there was there's this whole thing about uh like a, a moving through time you're really interested in time aren't you uh yeah i'm i'm interested in uh um yeah in time i mean i'm most mostly i'm interested in relationships mm -hmm. and and i think um looking at using a broad timeline to look at relationships can be a, a nice sort of often melancholic way to do it, a kind of objective view on a broad timeline of, of the loves and losses mm. that, that are character experiences that I've experienced or that, or that other people have experienced. The piece, well, the piece that I read today was about Jean Seberg, who was in, um, uh, who was in A Bouddha Souf, the Jean-Luc Godard classic, and she had a very sad, tragic life mm -hmm. um, it was um all the all the stuff in that is is plucked from wikipedia it's, it's, it's all true she was uh she was hounded by uh by the fbi um because she she donated money to the black panthers oh right and uh i think that's right i hope i'm remembering right it's a while since i since i wrote that piece um um but yeah they, they planted um news stories about her having a, her uh, her baby being a black panthers um love child and she was happily married to this guy, um, but well, she was married to this guy. But it, actually, she was having someone else's baby. It just wasn't the Black Panthers. It was the Mexican revolutionary who she'd met on the set of a Mexican Civil War drama. Um, anyway, she had a, she had a tumultuous a tumultuous. So is time time something that you usually write about? Uh, is it? Who knows? Maybe it is. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes time. Sometimes, sometimes time. time comes into my storytelling. Um, it's not. Uh, uh, when I work on longer pieces, a couple of the novels I've been working on, um, I'm very interested in in time. I've, I've always felt that that time it seems to be a central concern of the novel, mm. um, uh, and I'm interested in in reverse timelines and parallel selves and the, and the kind of chopping and changing time because it feels like as I progress through my life, that's sort of what life feels like to me. Life is a blur of experience and memory and dream and um i try to represent that in my prose i don't know if i get anywhere close to doing that how about you do you write about time i mean you write about um i just write about really cheerful children friendly <laughs> stuff you yes. know what i write about <laughs> you write about uh <laughs> beautiful uh egg farms yeah and, uh, clouds flowers you know all the all the the typical friendly bullets and in, in happy mouths <laughs> Wow, there's there's a collection. There's title. the title for your collection: "Friendly Bullets and Happy." That's Mouths. quite a good title. I'll keep I, that. It's a creepy title. I'll give you that much. <laughs> um, it, it's interesting because what you just said about blurring of identities and things like that is almost exactly something that Emma says later. Um, mm. And with that seamless segue, mm. uh, well, why don't we hear from why, why don't we hear Emma's piece? Good idea. Here's Emma. Mm. 
Irish Paul on the San Francisco Bart. To Irish Paul, you are the kind of man I would like to sleep with, and this will confuse everybody, especially me. To Irish Paul, who told me San Francisco was full of possibility and that I would meet interesting girls in the mission. Paul, my position on these things is varied and fluid, like the way gender can be described on a dating app. They, their, them, which is a positive, as in pro. Pronoun, forward, forward. Paul, I have often been an it at a bus stop, on a train, and I didn't mind so much, but I didn't really get why they were so bothered about me doing nothing but getting on a bus or boarding a train. Paul, the top three buttons of your shirt are undone, and you tell me you like my watch, which is made of cedar wood. Your chest is covered in downy hair, soft as lips, and I imagine this goes to your stomach. Paul, you tell me you have just got off of the same plane as me and that you noticed me in the airport layover at Iceland and you like my hat. Paul, you are cutting cannabis for the summer on a mountain and you have 30 pills in your backpack which is red and yellow and you've been taking something like DMT in Ireland in the woods. Paul, we've arrived at Powell Street Station. I hulk my suitcase, leave the train, and the doors close with a one-syllable sound behind me that I imagine, in some language, must mean to never see again. Paul, you are still tunnelling the bowels of Californian earth when I feel a great rush of late evening summer taxi fumes greet me before I've even reached the top of the escalator. This big queer city is a hot mouth of possibility. And Paul, I have come to cut my teeth. Tell us a little bit about where this 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 poem started because I did did it. Am I right in thinking it started in a residency? Is that that where? It, That's it, right. Yeah, from? I got the uh, Julia Darling Travel Fellowship from mm-hmm. uh, New Writing North and the the Julia Darling um, Fellowship that they run each year, and it's it's for a writer to go to um, to do a piece of work that travel will help that piece of work. So I put in a um, a bid to look at queer culture in a rural versus urban environment. And I found myself in San Francisco okay. um, for for two weeks. So yeah, it, I didn't actually write the poem in San Francisco, but it's it is based on an experience that happened there. How long were you there for? Yeah, two weeks. So I um, I was there during the Pride um, oh, wow, that celebrations. Was so yeah, it was um, it was a good time to go. Yeah, I can <laughs> yeah. imagine. So like, uh, have you found? Because like, how long have you been writing now? Um. I've yeah, I mean I've I've written for for pretty much as long as I can remember. Like I've, I've my parents were actually told I'd never be able to read or write properly, um, but yeah, and actually through poetry that was what made me be able to read or write almost. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, so so I've 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 been writing poetry and probably keeping a track of my own poems since I was like eleven or twelve. 
Oh, wow. So a long time. <laughs> and, and and is San Francisco the furthest afield your your work has taken you? What other places have you have you found yourself? Um, to? Yeah, in terms of if, in terms of my work, yeah. So mm. San Francisco is definitely the the furthest place that I've been um, as a result of work. Um, but you've also worked in Paris as well. Yeah, so I lived in Paris at Shakespeare and Company yeah. bookshop. Mm-hmm. Um, so I lived there as a tumbleweed for a few months, and then subsequently was invited back to be writer in residence as well. What's um, a tumbleweed? What's a tumbleweed is the name given to people who tumble into the shop. Um, young young writers, um, you have to prove that you, you are serious about being a writer and they decide whether or not they like not the look of you, but you know the the, the gist of you. Mm-hmm. Um, and you you stay in the shop, you live and work in the shop. Um, you don't get paid, but you've you've got somewhere to to stay. Uh, it was a very strange time when I was there because the founder George Whitman was was very ill. He actually died whilst I was there, which meant that we couldn't have access to the kitchen. So I actually, yeah, I mean, I I lived on um, I lived on couscous for three months. That I made, wow. I, had a, I had a kettle, and I used to put couscous and tuna into a little takeaway box and shake it and uh, and that and cereal and then i would go and shower in the in the public um, baths it was kind of it was kind of like being homeless but having somewhere to sleep at night it was Which, a very weird experience i i always, I, I find the, the the line between being homeless and the writer is, is kind of blurred <laughs> sometimes it's a very fine line <laughs> um do you still like couscous or is that just put you uh, off I it do for actually. the rest yeah, oh, you yeah, do? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah yeah it's, oh. it's a staple of my diet to be honest <laughs> so it wasn't a hardship too much <laughs> Um, so how is this? So you've you've been like you've been to, to France, you've been to America, and and you've been all over the UK with your writing. Yeah. How have you? How have these experiences changed you as a writer? Would you say how have you developed over the course of your career? Um, I think it's all to do with the people you meet. Um, obviously you meet different people in different places, but I think you're you're influenced by those people. Sometimes a long a long time down the line, like you know you might meet someone in in two thousand and two, and then in two thousand and twelve you find yourself writing a poem about that person that you haven't thought about for ten years, but they're kind of there in the in the makeup of your of your DNA mm-hmm. that, that have been altered by the actual process of meeting them, um, and yeah, obviously just having a different perspective on the on the world. I grew up in a very small rural area, quite a close minded area, um, and always felt. Uh, an outsider as I think a lot of writers do express feeling different in some way and a lot of writers write about that um so yeah just just going places and and being able to like expand within yourself is is a really nice feeling and then you take it back you take it back to that place and 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 that pushes something else on as well because then you then change the people that you then go on to meet or you go back to your family and you can say about experiences you've had and it's all part of a kind of a, an ongoing conversation and that just flows through everybody I suppose. And you can definitely see that in the piece that you've read there because I mean it's not it's not just San Francisco is it that like Iceland makes an appearance oh, yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> and the woods in Ireland yeah, yeah. and and so is Irish, Irish Paul someone you actually met? Yeah so um, so I flew from London and we had a layover at Iceland. And I remember being in the um, in the airport at Iceland and I was, I was there for quite a while, just sitting around waiting for the flight and then got the flight that uh, took us to San Francisco. And then I had to wait to get um, a, a bar, which is like their underground uh, network. And there was a guy that was just an interesting looking guy. He had, a, he had this yellow backpack that I kind of noticed and he just looked interesting. And then it turned out, I started chatting to him and then we got on the same 
um, the same Bart. We started chatting and he, he'd been on the same plane, but I didn't realise. He was an Irish guy and he'd been living in London for six months. He spent some time in London and then the rest of the time in San Francisco. But yeah, he was Irish and he was telling me all these stories about kind of what he'd been doing all summer. Uh, and he had a lot of drugs in his bag that I'm not sure how he'd got on the plane. Mm. <laughs> didn't ask. <laughs> um, but yeah, he was he was really nice. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's it basically is just the... It is something that happened, and uh, and I did, you know, I never saw him again. I saw him for I saw him for six minutes on that train. Um, There's a lot of it? like passing encounters in your poems. Like you, mm. you meet someone. What is it? Um, the uh, the Eve is a snake, or what was? Oh the... yeah, the um, the the sex in the snake, which is sex the idea the snake, yeah. that um, which has a great video to it as well. If, yeah, I've uh, just made can... a, I've just made a video with an actual mm. snake. What was that <laughs> like? It was cool. Oh. <laughs> it was a re- it was a really grounding experience actually. That that snake was was I don't know. It was good for me in a strange way. Um, yeah, so that was about um, turning the the biblical idea of the snake into. Um, a woman who just keeps turning up in places and she's, you know, older than history itself. And, and yeah, the idea was that I met her in a bar mm-hmm. um, and she's this kind of old woman giving advice. There is a gorgeous line in that poem, which is um, you with your mouth full of stories. Yeah. And do you find the more you travel, the more you meet these people with stories and, and, and the more you get out yeah, of Yeah, and they become your own story, you know. Yeah. Everyone's story interweaves and that's like... That's one of the beautiful things about life. It's like you're not here having a solitary experience. Everyone's stories are completely intermingled. Mm-hmm. We we can influence people's stories. We change people's lives by going into them and, and vice versa. So, yeah, it is all just one big story with many possible outcomes, many possible endings, and that's just yes, really nice. Yeah. So do you, uh, like, do you often find that you are the... Because this is sort of a controversial thing that comes up again and again, like the eye of the poem. You know how you're always told yes. you shouldn't assume that the writer is the eye of the poem. I, I I kind of get the impression that you are involved in your poems. You are the. I am more so more so now than than used to be actually, and I think that's because I'm more comfortable with myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so I used to very much remove myself from it, and I still really enjoy using other people's stories mm-hmm. and sometimes I adopt them so they look like my own but actually they're the stories of other people yeah. and sometimes I, I do use third person stuff as well because I think it's important that you know if you've got a platform to allow stories to come through that wouldn't necessarily come through from from uh, marginalised groups and people like that so mm-hmm. I've done quite a lot of residency work I worked with young homeless people um, several years ago now and I wrote in the first person but you know that's not my story. That that was their story. Um, but yeah, I mean, my stuff. It there is a lot of truth in what I write, mm-hmm. um, and I do take kind of inspiration just from sometimes the banality of the things that happen. That actually turns out isn't that banal. Like, because actually life isn't. Life is often rich and complicated. That that actually what you know. It's not this. People say, oh, it's just boring everyday stuff. But actually. There isn't an everyday that's boring because there's always stuff happening. Mm-hmm. Mm. You you say there's there's a truth in it, and I hear this a lot. People writers talk about truth and authenticity, even when the things they are talking about doesn't happen, or it didn't happen, or it didn't happen the way it happens in the poem or the or the short story. So, what would you say? What is a, a writer's definition of truth? What has to be true? For it to make it into a poem. Um, for it to make it into a poem. Something to do with believability, I think, mm. and credibility. Because, um, yeah, obviously you can write, like, fantasy pieces and, and there's there's worth in that. Um, but, yeah, I mean, when, when I've been 
um, like discuss some work with other poets. Um, you know, I'm, people might say, "Oh no, that that just that just doesn't sound like that would happen." So I yeah. think there has to be some kind of believability, otherwise that sense of truth is lost. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a poem is a good vehicle for telling the truth. I think you can tell like multiplicitous truths with within a poem, um, and and allow the reader to kind of decide, you know, what is the truth. Yeah. And one person's truth isn't everybody else's mm, truth. Yeah. Your truth is only ever your own. And even sometimes we lie to ourselves. So, you know. No, me, I never do that. Surely not. No. One of the things that, talking about truth and about believability, one of the things, one of the lines in that piece that I really love, um, it says a lot about me, I think, is the, um, you, the hairs on the chest, which I imagine goes all the way down to your belly. Stomach, I, yeah. Your, your stomach, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think it's just one of those. It's one of those uncomfortable things that, I mean, we don't talk about in general conversation, but everybody, well, I hope everybody's done it, you know? Is that sort of, you look at... I think it's just you, actually. Is it just yeah. me? Oh, God. Well, now I hope, I'm glad it, it's come out in this way, to be honest, among friends. But no, it's, it's that thing, is that, it's kind of, do you think that poetry and or writing in general, we it's the, it's a platform to talk about these things. Yeah, that we I mean, do. it's that thing where it allows when as a reader you read something, and this is I mean not just poetry. I think writing in general allows people to go, oh my god, yeah, I do that as well. It's it's that insight into everyone's internal monologue, and it turns out that we've all got actually quite a similar way of seeing of a process in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's then reflected through that internal monologue, and you're like, oh my god, yeah, it's, I've I've done that or. Thank goodness I'm not the only person who yeah. does that. Um, which just shows how much shame we're actually carrying around with us a lot it. of the time. Um, you know, don't get me started. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know how much you've got, but <laughs> you know. don't have a shame I don't think off. we should have a conversation. Have a shame <laughs> yeah, off. It could, could get a little bit strange. <laughs> um, but I, and this this piece does it really well. There are multiple moments in it when I'm hearing you and you're talking talking about things like that, and I'm going, "Oh God, yeah, oh God, yeah," and, and but. It's interesting because I know a little bit about this piece and how it mm-hmm. got written. And you you didn't like this when I you first know. wrote it. I thought it was rubbish. <laughs> Can you tell us a bit about that? Uh, so I just got back from San Francisco. And whilst I was there, I'd picked up a book by Eileen Miles that I was reading. Mm-hmm. And Eileen Miles writes in um, quite thin kind of shape. The, the, the shape on the page is quite thin. It's short lines and it's long um, the way it looks. And that was in my mind. So I... I'm often influenced by the the um, writers that I'm I'm reading at the time, mm-hmm. and I almost have like um, it's like humming a tune, but obviously the words are going to be different. Mm. So I kind of knew that that's how I was thinking. And immediately after I got back from San Francisco, I had a residency in Cornwall in the middle of nowhere. Um, so it was this kind of bizarre thing to go from the madness of San Francisco to this barn in the middle of nowhere. Um, Port Isaac, which I've now got a feeling might be North Devon, not Cornwall, and I think I might have started some war <laughs> you were for any so listeners. In the middle of nowhere, you um, didn't know where yeah, you were. <laughs> but they filmed something down there that I think Doc Martin. They filmed that there. Oh, okay. Uh, but yeah, so it was somewhere near there. I didn't see it getting filmed, but anyways, um, yeah. So I was there, and it was really nice weather. It was July, and I remember being outside, and I'd been, I had been reading Eileen Miles, and then I started thinking about. Yeah, the guy that I'd met on the train, who I hadn't really thought about since since I'd met him. But mm. obviously, like what I said earlier, those kind of stories, those things that happen to us, are there somehow within the kind of cells of our yeah. body. And sometimes we find them and, and they come out and sometimes they don't. Um, and I started thinking about, about him. And I kind of just started composing it in my head. 
I remember being outside of, of, of the barn, little patio area. And then, yeah, I went back in, got a piece of paper, kind of wrote the whole thing down and, and pretty much wrote it in one go. Mm. Um, and then just left it. And I thought, I thought what it was, was like me experimenting with what I'd been reading, basically, like, you know, kind of adopting some, another writer's way of, of, of showing things on the page. Um, so yeah, it was quite a pagey kind of poem mm. when, when I first wrote it. Um, and then I didn't, I didn't think anything of it. And then I was doing some work with um, Claire Shaw and she was looking over some of my work and this happened to be in that pile. But I'd not kind of even registered that it was really there in a big way. And she got back to me and she was like, yeah, and this one, this one about Irish Paul, this is really good. Mm. And I was like, oh, really? I I didn't like it that much. I didn't think it was that good. And she's like, oh, no, it's really good. And then I know after like you and I had that discussion and you were like, oh, yeah, I like that one as well. Mm. And then a few people came back and I was like, oh, really? I, yeah, because for me, it just felt like, it felt like an exercise. Yeah. That I'd done. Was it because it was so quick? Did, were you just a bit suspicious of it? Yeah, or was it was yeah, so yeah. new? Or? Yeah, because it was new, because it was quick, because it didn't feel like I'd, I'd laboured over it in mm. the way that I do with other pieces. And I just kind of done it and then just left it in a notebook. Um, so yeah, it just felt like, it felt like a throwaway piece to me. I, I didn't, I didn't really respect it as a piece at all. Well, you respect it now. Though, and now yeah, I've changed yeah. because of what people have said. Um, and the more I've read it, I've been, all right, okay, maybe... Maybe it's all right. Yeah, yeah. We're sort of our own worst enemies, aren't yeah, we? Sort definitely. of when we're a writer, I think. <laughs> um, it was interesting. You describe it as a as more of a page piece. Is is your yeah. stuff? Would you describe yourself more? Because there's the, these labels: page poet, performance poet. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? That that that's always been one that's that's difficult to navigate. Um, I think my work is is best received when I perform it. And I think that that's got something to do with the fact that it's it's reliant on my accent as well. Like mm. I, I, I write in a very sonic way um, and, and always have that. And I think I actually perceive the world in quite a sonic way as well. Um, so sometimes when it's on the page, I think it can maybe be flat in some way. But having said that, other people have said, oh, no, actually it does work. But, you know, sometimes I think it's kind of like, my poem, poems are children and when I go out with them, they behave themselves and do what they're supposed to do. And <laughs> when I send them out <laughs> on the page, mm. I'm not entirely sure what happens. I think um, if they were your children, they're never going to behave, to be honest. <laughs> uh, Big rabble. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like, do you, right, what, what's your opinion on, on this whole page, page performance bon. thing? Do you think these labels... What uh, do you think of these labels? I think they're quite dangerous, to be honest. Mm -hmm. um, I think the you know there's there's amazing poets on what was thought of as the, the spoken word scene, mm -hmm. and that was looked down on in some way by more kind of what you might think of as like establishment poet, poets. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there was very kind of dangerous lines drawn. Um, the, the, the kind of this generation now, and I don't mean like my generation, I mean actually the one underneath me, mm -hmm. I think they're the ones that are actually tearing down a lot of these lines that were, were drawn and we're, there's much more crossover. And as a result, that's filtering almost from the ground up. And some of those those poets who are now older that at one time were classed as one as the other are now finding there is more fluidity to, to move between these kind of, yeah, these fake... Um, polarizations that were were created mm. um and the market for poetry is changing as well because obviously now with like you know podcasts and all that kind of stuff people putting their own stuff online um which has got more of a performance element because at one time you could only get poetry 
written down. You, mm. you know, you couldn't actually just go and see the poet perform it. When I was, you know, growing up, I was reading Wallace Stevens in, in my bedroom, you know. Um, I mean, I don't think I could have ever seen Wallace Stevens on YouTube. That, that would be impressive. But <laughs> <laughs> it might be, but, you never know. <laughs> but now, you know, if, if you, you can, you can any, any kind of poet that's writing today, you can pretty much Google them and you'll find something online that's that's a performance piece that's you know being recorded by them or being recorded when they've been given a reading um and i think there is a difference between poets who just read their work um and, and then yeah and then there are poets that very definitely do perform it in a more theatrical way mm. um but yeah i think i think that distinction is dangerous and um it's restrictive uh to, to both to both sides um, because there's some like you know there's some good really really good page poets that don't have massive audiences in the same way that some spoken word poets do that really deserve it because they're really really good poets mm-hmm. and if we can somehow amalgamate this all together um, and stop having this like you and us kind of mentality yeah. you know I, I, we're all doing something different mm-hmm. uh, we spoke about this the other day when um, I think it's the, the T.S. Eliot quote that talks about um we're not in competition with each other because what we do is so different from one another anyways. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and that really struck a chord with me that, that night when we were talking about that. Um, so, yeah, and I, I think those kind of... any I'm not into anything that's divisive in that way mm. anyways, you know what I mean? It is, it's, such a, it's such a small pool that we're all swimming in that yeah. you know should we just let's let's just swim in it together and stop trying to like separate let's the pool yeah, yeah. yeah it's hard enough um so yeah yeah and the reason i ask about this because because we were because uh, we were talking now and you've you've talked about uh blurring of identity within uh sometimes i am the person sometimes i'm not and, and talking about authenticity and talking about page and perform the identity of the writer itself I, and, and listening to the piece, it's, I think I get the impression that identity is very important to your work. Would you Would yeah. you agree with that? Yeah, it, it crops up a lot um, without me being consciously aware that that's what's happening. But mm. it, it definitely crops up. And I think that's because I kind of struggle to, to work out who I was allowed to be, I think, for for a long time. And then, yeah, I got to a point where I was like, oh, do you know what? I'm not, I'm not bothered if I'm allowed to be or I'm not allowed to be. I'm just, I'm just going to be. Mm. Um, it, it seemed to take me a long time to, to be comfortable in my own skin. Um, and I think, yeah, I think a lot of that was to do with growing up in such a kind of small community um, as a queer person. And I didn't know that that's, that's what I was in then. I, I just knew there was something, but yeah. I didn't know what it was. Um, and so, yeah, so that, it wasn't really until my, I think, my early 30s that I started to accept myself and not um, not kind of tell myself I was wrong in somewhere. I think mm-hmm. I spent a lot of my life telling myself that I was at the fault, not not the rest of the world. It was definitely my fault for things. That was Mark speaking to Emma McGordon, and now here's Ian Walker. Invertebrate Exposé, Limax Trapeze. These two have been performing for hours with ease, stalked each other to their aerial harness. The wet lips of themselves secreting a bond, kissing the patterns of the glossy leopard print. That initial slip down the spit-like silken fabric 
suspending the weight of their love, making frenzied twists and grips, their mantles fanned out in excitement. Excretion, keeping their levitated intimacy buoyant. Extending their sexes, twice their length, luminous blue protrusions forming floral contortions as their plumpness gently spins. Two glistening bodies, carpe noctem, an illicit aerobic display among the branches. And when it's done, still clinging to one another, drop with graceful thud to the mud below. What made you, Ian Walker, what made you want to write about the sex lives of invertebrates? <laughs> get that every, every time I read the poems, I get that question. Yeah. Um, I imagine that you would. It's, it's, I mean, yeah, I, okay. it's a surprising I, subject, which I you, which you execute niche. beautifully and you make fascinating and beautiful. Oh, thank but you. why did you choose that? Um, I think, uh, for me, it wasn't really a choice of choosing it. I think, um, I mean... It truthfully, chose you. No, I, I'm not going to say that, but I've always been, always been fascinated with invertebrates. I used to spend most of my childhood in any back garden, backyard, not even, like, it'd just be the fence around the schoolyard. Mm. Um, fascinated by the things that crawled around and things that were everywhere. And I assumed that all kids did. And it wasn't until I was in my late teens, um, went to university and... I was obviously still quite vocal about loving bugs, and somebody was like, "That's weird." <laughs> yeah. Um, oh no! But yeah, well, for me, it was at university, like, well, really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it took that long because I'd never like my family. You had very accepting of, schoolmates. Well, well, I didn't, I didn't really have those. Um, but, um, no, I think that um, my family were always aware that this was just something I was into, and I just read around it a lot. Um, and I think that because I was writing poetry anyway, and I'd read around it a lot, um, I think I tend to write. When I'm writing poetry and I'm sitting down and I'm 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 sort of constructing a poem, I, I know that I'm being visceral. And usually the content as well will will come from a place that is about intimacy, usually mm. human intimacy. Mm. Um but scattered throughout writing those poems are then these poems that um were about invertebrate intimacy. Yeah. Um and I realized very early on that that was going to be a sequence, that that needed to be um a sequence of poems that were called Invertebrate Exposé, exploring those those sex lives. What is it about that topic that works? Why is Because it, it does work. I think they're great. Why is it... What is it about invertebrates that, as an angle into intimacy, that that works so well, do you think? Oh, God, I don't know. I, I mean, they're incredibly small for a start. I mean, not all of them, but they're ignored, right? And so mm. I think that that... That allows fresh eyes. It, it, it allows a newness. Yeah. Um, because I mean, let's face it, sex is wonderful. Sex is gross, and sex is weird. Yes. <laughs> and it doesn't matter who or where or what species. It just is. And I think yeah. that um, then being able to view it at that small level or at that level that's just a little bit grosser or weirder or different yeah. allowed me to sort of look at at sex and sexuality in a way that was as new. Fresh is that what you said? Like I like that, but um, yeah, I think it's... there's it's there's an extra layer of intimacy there. I think created by the fact that you're paying attention to something small that people don't pay attention to, 
that that's a, a form of intimacy right so th- there's the other thing it's not just the intimacy of the relationships themselves um yeah. you know i don't just write about bug sex i write about well i write about lots of things um but i like to focus on the invertebrate world and it's specifically our relationship to with the invertebrate world the mm. the the sort of that intimacy that that is there because that invertebrate world is still our world right we're part of the mm. natural world um and and that intimacy i think is important and i think that's that might be what works on that level is that mm. that connection to well these are living things as well and they're doing things that we do or not i'd like to point that out <laughs> yeah. um but it's still it's 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 an intimacy cr- across species then mm. a lot of a lot of writers uh i think less good writers <laughs> would just find humor in that in that topic right they'd just be bawdy and funny and um but you haven't done that you've been tender what i i mean thank you that's nice um but also you know i am limax uh, trapeze is a poem about two leopard slugs having sex yes i think, I think <laughs> there's an inherent humor do you know what i mean and i think that's what's important for me is that i mean i i, I don't always write comically or tenderly or or you know, I, I hope that all of those elements are involved in my writing full stop. Yeah. Um, I hope that I'm self-aware enough. Well, that's that's a really good way to, to get humour into your work, I think, by your selection of your subject, having an inherent um, uh, humour to it, but then approaching it with with the same tenderness and intimacy that you would approach, um, you know, a, a more like in brackets, serious human subject or whatever. Um, I think that tends to produce work that's, that has... That you know makes people smile as they hear it, but that has weight and heft and beauty to it as well. Yeah, no, and it's interesting because there, there are there are so I'm working towards a manuscript looking at, at you know um, our interaction with the invertebrate world. Um, obviously, that sequence invertebrate expose looks at the sex lives of the invertebrates themselves um, in various characters and guises and voices, mm. but there are poems as well that actually look at our interaction. Um, in a way that is tender and in a way that is visceral. And, um, you know, that, like, <laughs> I was reading at Carol and Duffy and Friends in December and I read a poem which is, I mean, frankly, it's a, it's a poem about a blowjob that involves a flea and it's written after John Donne. So, <laughs> you know, I... Of course. I, of course I, well, is. this is it. And all of that is quite sort of self-aware and a little bit haughty, but I don't think any of that then detracts from the... There was a member of the audience sat on the front row, God bless them, was having to listen to me um, read this poem out. Um, And the minute that the flea sort of enters the poem, they turned around to the person next to them and were just like, ooh. (laughs) (laughs) But did you quite like that? Well, yeah, of course (laughs) I did, right? Because that's, I mean... It's that. It's, it's that, a reaction. It's, well, yeah, and also it's kind of like we're still like that flea was as much part of that blowjob as anybody else in the room, um, and so for anybody then hearing it or listening to it to have that reaction, it's like well, that's kind of the reaction I had, and it's kind of the reaction he. Well, when I told him afterwards, yeah. um, that that that's what had happened, and that this is the poem that exists from it. I think that you know we can't. I don't know whether I purposefully. You're a unique writer, Ian. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know whether I've, I purposefully make anybody squirm or, or you know, squeamish or even uncomfortable. Like, But I think that that's important sometimes. Mm. And I think that 
um, again, this subject allows me to do that, right? But I, I think when in all of your work that I've that I've seen, there's uh, there's always a sense that even if there is a kind of uh, squirmy discomfort involved, it's in within this cased in this environment of of warmth and tenderness. It's not it's not harsh. It's not confrontational. It's 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 intimate. I think um, when Ian, uh, Andrew McMillan was in, he was talking about how. Just, just the act of looking closely at someone as a writer, fictional or or not, um, is an act of intimacy. You know, yeah. like like looking at someone closely and getting to know them. I and I I think that's something that I I try to pay close attention to in my work. Um, do you? I mean, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because I think when you just looking at it from a reader's perspective, when you engage with any poem and you feel that connection, it automatically becomes intimate. So the content of the poem itself doesn't necessarily make it intimate. Hmm. It's the interaction, again, with that, oh my God, word of the day. Um, hmm. But it's it's you sort of sharing that moment with then the writer of the thing. And it's, I mean, you know, we can argue that good poets and good writers will always make sure that they, they're aware of that connection to you as the reader prior. Um, and I think then looking from it as a writer, as a poet, that again is what I'm trying to do. I'm not just writing these poems because I like bugs and I like sex. Like, these are things that I think we can inherently have in common. Um, and if not the sex and the bugs, there's there's a level of a communication no matter what between all of us. And I think that's what any poet is trying to do um but i think that's what i'm trying to do as well i'm not just writing these poems so i can put them in my bedside drawer mm. um i want to communicate and part of communication is the the other side of it and being aware of that other side of it the the recipient Well, what a show we've had, I know. Mark Padgett. I what a show. That's the most fun I've ever heard you have during an interview. And you, you enjoy everything you do here. Well, what, what, a, what a delightful guest we had. 
<laughs> what a delightful guest we had to interview. He's sitting over there right now looking at me. Listening. I know. I mean, he's in the corner of the room right now. <laughs> listening to everything. <laughs> Let's tear him to pieces. Uh, but we've had an... It's been an incredibly intimate uh, show. That's true. With both the pieces and also about the things that we were talking about. Mm. Um, and about... Yeah. It's weird because... Uh, we were talking to Emma about truth and the idea of truth. And the, yeah, and honesty. Then, and, and yeah, and yeah. then we got such an incredibly honest look at things from Ian, just yeah. saying about it's not it's not as lofty as you make it out to be, which I really liked. There's, yeah, that's a hard truth. It is, isn't, isn't it? it? I, I it think is. a big part of why I went into writing is because I wanted to be lofty and important and, and you know, highly successful. And, I think a lot of yeah. people do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think everybody... You want a bit of status and pride and... Yeah, you get, you get caught up in the... Somebody had this wonderful expression, you get caught up in the scaffolding of writing hmm. uh, without any of the, the core sort of building. People like... To affect, you know, they yes, wear these long black clo- uh, coats, you know, and uh, and, and, and drink whiskey and things like that. You they know? wear scarves indoors. I know. God, look at you. <laughs> but no, for, it's, for our listeners, I'm currently wearing a scarf and Mark's wearing a long black coat. How dare you? <laughs> but no. But we have to reveal. We have to be honest, Mark. This is true. We have to make ourselves vulnerable. But you do get a lot of people who, who, who want to be writers without actually writing. You know, there's that whole thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, and didn't and doesn't it make you want to scream? But you're not doing the hard bit. I've been slogging for a decade. No, no, not really. I mean, if they're, oh, come on. If they're enjoying themselves, <laughs> that's fine. It's just he said condescendingly. Uh, well, I'm I'm condescending, so that's <laughs> yeah. how it comes out. Um, I, I mean, each their own. I, yeah. I, you see, I say these sort of things, and then I go, well, if I took a a long hard look. In the mirror, what would I see? You know, and, and that's oh god, don't. <laughs> work. Long hard looks in the mirror. No, thank you. Thank I mean, you so I, much. I mean, darling. I do. I do think that that. Uh, I mean, calling yourself a writer should be quite a hard one thing. Mm. I think. I think you really have to. You have to. Uh, you have to earn that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And when Emma was talking, talking about. She's been writing all her life. Can we and... just talk about Emma for a little while? Emma's what an amazing person and, and writer she oh, is. Oh, God, yeah, yeah. I, I, I absolutely... I've known Emma for a long time now, and she is fantastic. And she's just one of these people who's not only a great writer, but she's a great advocate for writing. She just... Um, there's just... You know, she's got so much love for, for the thing itself as well as doing it, mm. you know? Um, and she's always doing these projects and always doing these residencies as well. And she's always gallivanting over to San Francisco and meeting hairy chested men on the Bard. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, aren't we all? Well, aren't it, we all? In, in my dreams. Um, <laughs> but I, th- I it, thought, it's, it was, sorry, go on. Sorry, I'm just going to say that. It's, no, it's, no, no, go on. It's, it's, you go first. It's exciting that both the writers we talked to are on the verge of. of my, they're, they're working towards manuscripts, full manuscripts. Isn't that exciting? Emma we can help f- spread the word. Well, it's going to be. It's, I mean, we've heard it today in both pieces. They're going to be something else. They're going to be extraordinary. I mean, Ian's working towards his first pamphlet, which you he's know, still is, listening over there in the corner. I know, but it's it's gonna. It's well, you can listen all you like. So <laughs> I, I'm going to get 
he's going to rip into me afterwards. It's, <laughs> it's, it's going to happen. But that pamphlet is going to be snapped up anytime soon now. Yeah. yeah. Once it's getting sent out, which is very, Once very soon. Once they hear this show. Well, and, and Emma's working on her full length manuscript. And it's, it's, it's mm. just so nice to have writers just before everything. Because we've had... Established writers like um, like Andrew McMillan uh, and yeah, you know Joe Stretch. Joe Stretch and all these people and it's really nice to also have those that you know these these this is what's coming. It's true. I mean the 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 community around Manchester is is mind blowing. Really, there's so many talented people who are right on the verge of launching like phenomenal careers and lots of lots of talented people who have maybe had had one or perhaps two collections out there who are who are already. You know some of the brightest lights in the in the literary scene, like uh, like Kim Moore and Andrew mm. as well. You know on his second on his second collection only. Mm. Um, I thought it was really uh, I really liked the way you and Emma were talking about honesty and vulnerability being key to uh, to good writing. Well, that was all lies, you know. <laughs> it was all bollocks. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a veil, and but I I think it's true. I think that that yeah, is yeah. that is really important. It was really I, it was interesting what she was saying about. Um, her, her niece and nieces, I think she was saying, wanted to have a YouTube channel. She was like, yeah. "Is it going to be honest?" And I think uh, uh, she nailed it. You know, those that kind of um, the modern uh, way of getting content out there. Often they don't encourage honesty. They encourage um, what conventionalism? Conventional? Con- blah, 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 blah. They encourage what do they encourage? Well, it's it's that fifteen minutes of fame, isn't it? Or fifteen yeah. seconds of fame nowadays. It's it's. Uh, I want to be seen and I want to be liked and liked in the Facebook term. Yeah. I want that hit of dopamine when yeah. somebody else sees what I do and presses a button I in want, another country. Yes, I want positive feedback and a little bit of status for this thing that I've done that mm-hmm. I've worked on for not very long instead of I've worked on this for 10 years and sweated over it and, and the attention that I'm getting is so hard won. Uh, it's, it's, it's not necessarily like that anymore. Yeah. And, and maybe it's, maybe it doesn't encourage exposing yourself in quite the same way as someone like Emma does. Which was something similar to what Ian was saying there, is there's that, that loftiness, that over-importance, over-indulgence in importance. Mm. What, what you're doing, only, know, only you know why you're doing it. I and don't even know. Are you, Not well, even I know what I'm this, doing. This is the thing, was we always talk about why is it that we write, and we always come up with a sort of different answer each week sort of yeah. thing. Um, and that's... That's fascinating. You know, it's it. Uh, Don Patterson talks about we we won't find writing as a vocation in the future. We'll, we'll, it'll be a um, a diagnosis. Mm. One of those things you are diagnosed as a writer. Yeah. I'm and, sorry. I'm sorry to let you know, sir. Oh God, yeah, yeah. You're a writer. <laughs> no. But it is one of those things. It's it's. Um, you don't understand it. You don't fully understand it. You don't understand why you have to keep doing it. Yeah. Well, wow. do we I'll, have to keep doing it, Mark? Well, we don't have to. That's is it fine. a life sentence? I think it is. <laughs> well, you know what? I'm enjoying it. There's some yeah, it's all right, most it? of it. It's all right. Oh, yeah. It's, it's got its upside, hasn't it? Oh, yeah. All right. Shall we hear from you, sir? Uh, Want to close the show? Sure. Let's. In. Yeah, let, let's. In, in the, it's your the, turn. In the spirit of being brutally honest and vulnerable, this was a piece I wrote after reading a a news report in the Liverpool Echo and it really it really got to me and I, I had to write something about it. All right, and now you can listen to it. Here's Mark to close the show. Thin, 
collie dog locked in a shed in Toxteth. Dead. We shoved the door in, found him thin. A bin bag of cutlery. A cider pint stink. Flies in the spoons of his eye sockets. Scraps of fur crumbed with blood. Empty shelves of ribs and the pear stalk of his penis. Dead. Until I touched him and he whined like a knife scraping a plate. Rattled the rinds of his tail. <laughs>